We're advancing to the higher and more refined uses of equanimity. As I said at the beginning, there's two branches, basically, of equanimity. One is the function of stability and balance in the midst of activity, in the midst of ideas, in the midst of communication with others. In the midst of, communi- in the, midst of uh, the polarities of life, of success and failure, praise and blame, good fortune, bad fortune, obscurity and fame. So that's one kind of equanimity, one species of equanimity. And uh, profoundly useful and would be the predominant use of or application of equanimity even for an arahant or uh, even a monk that's living in seclusion because there's only so much time that you can actually be in pure uh, samadhi meditation. So that's the other form of equanimity is it's really a very spacious stillness is what it is. And there's no application of of it to sort of ordinary life. It's a specialized, extraordinary life. And what it does is characteristic of the fourth jhana. So this is the tone, the emotion of the fourth jhana. Now we proceed to the, you you don't just go to the fourth jhana, uh, usually, uh, and through, through history, there have been various uh, phases in the sangha and in the lay community of the assessment of the the possibilities of jhana, both for monastics and for lay people, how applicable it is, how necessary it is, how possible it is. And the jhanas keep going in and out of fashion, going in and out of attainability. Um, It's obvious if we go back to the time of the Buddha, he's a strong advocate of jhanic practice. And you have, it seems, people are attaining jhana by the boatload. And uh, indeed, the stages of enlightenment by the boatload. And not just monastics. The uh, lay community is as well. The lay community meditates. They don't go on retreats. They meditate mostly at home and they come to visit the monastery whenever they can. Monastery, fortunately, is just about half a mile away, just through the woods. And so you can go over there any time. Monks are living in small dwellings, and they'll be there in the morning passing through your village on alms round. So you'll see them 
every day. Um, and you, you, uh, you will have an opportunity to go over and talk to certain monks uh, who are available to speak to. And you get to know them, and you invite them also for meals at your house. And sometimes you bring food over to the monastery, but they would be on alms round on a daily basis as well. So you have a lot of interaction. But people at that time, you know, they were rice farmers and had various duties and 12 kids and things like that. So it's not like, uh, I'm just, uh, you take care of the kids. I'm going off to retreat now. So who will feed the water buffaloes? So it's kind of like uh, Thailand in the Isan, the northeast, where I was uh, 25 years ago in, in Ajahn Chah's monasteries there, surrounded by these farmers and water buffaloes. They're really not coming on retreat, but they're almost in a daily interaction with uh, the monks. And they do show up uh, for formal, long sittings, usually all-night sittings, once a week. And again, in in that forest tradition, it seems like a revival of almost the time of the Buddha. You have forest monks uh, seeming to say, some of the, the great uh, forest masters seeming to say that some of the uh, villagers have attained jhana, even uh, the fourth jhana. And uh, so that's a very profound state, the fourth jhana. In different countries, at the same time, like if you went to Sri Lanka or Burma, they would have a very different opinion of whether this was possible or even what lay people should be doing. Uh, I think in Sri Lanka, up to very recently, the the idea of uh, even the monks attaining jhana was kind of uh, doubtful. Uh, The the practice had fallen away. In, In Burma, there was a huge emphasis on vipassana practice, kind of revival of, uh, of practice, both for lay people and for monastics, but with a very strong bias towards uh, this exclusively vipassana meditation rather than any form of jhana meditation. So you see this kind of spread out ver- um, attitudes to these things. And you see it also in history when you read the commentaries. By the time you get about a thousand years after the Buddha, you get the Visuddhimagga's versions of the jhanas. They seem to make it like, whoa, you know, one in a million people will attain. It's it's super normal. It's very, very difficult. Especially breath meditation. They had almost given up on breath meditation. They had gone to colored casinas. And it's very different than if you read a commentary 500 years before, which is, uh, would be called the Vimuti Maga. There it seems more accessible, and, and breath is highly recommended, and dis- different descriptions. So I like to go back to the earliest suttas, really. It's just 
uh, I don't trust uh, some of the sociological changes that have gone on in Asia. They, all kinds of things, attitudes are picked up and certain beliefs uh, spread. And they're just beliefs. So if you go back to the suttas, the, the Buddha always says, you know, wherever the Eightfold Path is found, there you will find people of the first, second, third, and fourth stages of enlightenment. Wherever you fulfill the preconditions for the development of samadhi, there you will find people who attain samadhi. So throwing away pessimistic or optimistic ideas about, you know, preconceived ideas about whether you can or cannot attain this, you go back to the Buddha and say, he, he cuts through it in a, in a very wise way. He said, just put in the causes, quit, quit guessing. Is this possible, is not possible? There's nothing magical in the air at the time in, in the 5th century. There's nothing magical in the air now. People are fundamentally not different, but it's a matter of whether you put in the causes. So, uh, and I encourage, and I have for you know a long time, <clears throat> probably since I became a monk, and before that, I was very interested in uh, samadhi practice, concentration practice, jhana practice, before I was a monk as well. And I went off and became a hermit and lived in the woods for years and just practiced that kind of... Um, Meditation as well, and then I, when I ordained, I ordained with Bhante Gunaratana, who's uh, he had written a book on the jhanas, and we we talked a lot about it. It's very unusual for a Sri Lankan monk first that he was a strong advocate of meditation to begin with, and then that he establishes a forest monastery, and secondly that he encouraged um, the practice of and the aspiration to jhana. And so I, I was never uh, in a school that had any doubts about jhana or the value of it or the possibility of the practice of it. But whatever we think, I th- in my experience, the fourth jhana is quite a an outstanding achievement and, would, and requires... As Bhante G used to say, if you want to practice, you know, aspire to jhana, you, you can't have any other hobbies. Even for monks, you, you can't have hobbies. You want there's a very complete commitment of the mind to this, at least for periods of time. And so it's obviously a a high art, a fine art, and something you devote yourself to and have to be a careful uh, about where your mind goes and etc., if you want to establish these preconditions. <clears throat> One of these preconditions, though, very fortunately, is that to uh, practice equanimity, the wisdom form of equanimity, the one in, in, act, in interaction. So a life that is led equanimously also sets up the preconditions for the development of samadhi. Because in order to be equanimous in everyday life, you have to have a very high 
uh, practice of mindfulness. You have to keep being aware of when you're losing it, when you're losing your balance, when you're getting carried away, when you're falling into a hindrance, a psychic irritant. And so that is very, very good preconditions for the establishment of when you get a chance to sit beautifully undisturbed in a quiet room by yourself or in a meditation retreat. Uh, for these are, This is a very good preliminary approach to allow the mind to go towards the equanimity which is found in the jhanas, in the samadhi state. When you practice this, and this is information, <clears throat> I don't necessarily expect anybody in the room to just, you know, tomorrow, now that you've got the instructions, to go to the fourth jhana, but it, it might happen. Um, What's, what's, uh, it's important, though, that people know, hear about this and know about this. Uh, otherwise, well, how are you going to expect anybody? You, there might, there's, there's no reason to think that, that uh, people who have the capacity might show up at a monastery. Why are you here anyway? The, why isn't everybody else here? Uh, why, why do only a small number of people come to monasteries? Because the, from a Buddhist point of view, you... You are inclined this way. You already, you wouldn't ever, it would never have occurred to you to come here if you haven't some inclination to this. Just like you don't go to a concert if you're not interested in music. Um, you have some inclination. You're, you have a little uh, scanning device on the top of your head. You may not have noticed it, but. It's scanning the horizon always for things that are in in line with its interest, its primary deeper interest, its ex, your, your continuous search for existential truth. And then you're scanning the horizon like this, and when anything comes across something that gets interested, and you go there. And that, so it's not an accident. It's not just a random sample of the population that arrives at the monastery. So you might have what talent. You might have the, the, the capacity, the talent. <clears throat> so that's why it's important to, to not keep anything back and not dumb anything down. So we have these retreats where I spend a lot of time talking about these higher uh, practices, and equanimity is one of these higher practices, both in the uh, activity version and also in the stillness version. We also have, you know, extended jhana retreats. In January we did a, a full one month, uh, invited people to come for a full month to aspire and practice in, in perfect conditions for, for jhana. <clears throat> and I think I, I had conversations uh, in the interviews with some people who felt, and I, I I kind of trust their judgment. They've been at it a long time. Some of them claimed that they had attained the fourth jhana. So it's something that's there. It's good information. It's something to aspire to, and it's something that's <clears throat> extraordinary. It is uh, in the 
teaching of the Buddha, it's, it's a supernormal uh, condition. As enlightenment is a supernormal condition, and also the attainment of jhanas are supernormal. One of the rules for monks is they're not, they're not allowed to declare any personal attainments of supernormal states to lay people. They can talk about it amongst themselves to other ordained monastics, but they're not supposed to claim supernormal states. And, and they specifically go into what is a supernormal state, of course, all the stages of enlightenment, but also jhana. So the, um, it, don't expect it to be take off in a widespread kind of way. Uh, it's very interesting how mindfulness has become very popular. You find it everywhere. It's applied in all kinds of fields. But jhana is really, you're never going to have a large percentage of the population that is going to come anywhere near it. That's the definition of supernormal. It's not normal. And people, most people are normal. So it's a bell curve, yeah. And jhana is on the sort of the 130 and above IQ uh, thing. It's not IQ, though. You might, in fact, your IQ might work against you. You, you, you yeah, you, no, your smarts can, it's a two-edged sword. Your, your intelligence is a two-edged sword. The fact that you have, can use it and you get rewarded for using it and then you start to use it all the time and then, and then it becomes a curse. The thing won't stop. You know, it's all you do all day is think about things because that's your, you've been praised for that. That's your talent. You get, you get results from, you get rewards for that. But it, it, it's not a really a satisfactory way to live. So jhana is, uh, is kind of bypassing the endless discursive activity, intellectual discursive activity of the mind. And it is a, higher reward, it's a a higher and more refined degree of pleasure than anything you can do with the thinking mind. So if you endeavor in this practice of jhana, the characteristic of of equanimity doesn't arrive in its fullest form until the deepest states, that is the fourth jhana. What you begin with is not equanimity, but you begin with joy and energy. And it's good not to... Some people would like to skip to straight to the fourth jhana, skip straight to the equanimity. Usually what happens, and I see this all the time, is you just fall asleep. You just nod off. Um, I talk in uh, many of my retreats, I give this analogy of bicycling, going out for a nice bicycle ride. And um, it's really good exercise and you're out in the fresh air and, and you, it's not always on the flat, you have to pedal. And sometimes you have to pedal up to the top of a very big hill and on the other side, though, you can coast. You can stop pedaling and just let the breeze blow through your hair, and it's a beautiful no-pedal coasting. But you can't coast before you get to the top of the hill. If you, just, if you stop pedaling, you just stop. 
So a lot of energy and joy has to be put in before you can stop pedaling and see if the bicycle will still still keep going. And that's what happens in, in this development of samadhi. You need to uh, make it joyful and interesting and it, energetic. You have to exert yourself to get there. And it, it's not exactly pure peace or quiet yet. That only can come as a resultant of having developed the first uh, part of the endeavor, and that is uh, a, a good deal of energy and, the, and positive, joyful endeavor has to be put in before you can get to this state of breathless stillness. When I say breathless, I actually literally mean it. The respirations, one of the most ob- best objective measurements of the, your samadhi is the respirations per minute. I don't know exactly. My guess is that the brain uses up a lot of, or requires a lot of oxygen to do certain types of functions. And now notice that a person who's quite emotional or angry, they'll, their respiration increases. They breathe very fast. And I guess it's a biological inheritance of having to fight or flee. Our respiration has to increase excitement and a hostility, increase respiration rates. Some people who are agitated or... Uh, Restless, have a high respiration rate just in normal life. You hear them breathing at the next desk over. They're all, it's, it's, an, it's slightly unnerving. It's, <laughs> but a very calm person is, you probably don't notice their respiration at all. I think uh, stand, ordinary normal respiration is something like 12, uh, 12 breaths per minute. <clears throat> so if a nurse comes in and checks... I don't know any nurses here. Uh, checks on the on the patient. They will they will uh, look at their watch and and watch the rise and fall of the. And if it's in the 12 to 15 range, it's then they they they're all right. But your your uh, breaths per minute will will because you're using your mind in a different way. Your respirations per minute will will decline. You know, they will fall and uh, the respiration per minute will become slower. It's not that you're... I, I guess you're moving into a different part of the brain that doesn't demand uh, that kind of oxygen level, and the brain seems to use you know, 25 or 30% of the whole body's demand. So you will... Just even in the first jhana, you will probably... you. I, I can't... You know, there's never been a widespread study of this, but uh, I would say that if you're above three breaths per minute, you're probably not really in the in the even in the first jhana. If your breaths go down to two and a half breaths per minute, probably you're in, uh, and that would be a con- on a continuous uh, without feeling that you were lacking for air or anything. It's, I know people practice holding their breath for a long time. Some, there's a whole cult of people holding their breath out there like, what is that about it? Get a life. I mean, 
or come to a retreat at least. I can show you some pleasure. (laughs) You don't have to stop breathing. Just slow it down. (laughs) So this is uh, two and a half to three breaths per minute is the physiology, you know, kind of an objective. like uh, something you can actually, you can also count your breath while you're in the state. You can be aware of the, the breath numbers. It's not in conflict with samadhi. <clears throat> Picking up this counting, I, I saw the re- reason why it ever occurred to me to count my breath was that it, it actually talks about it in the commentaries. It doesn't talk about it in the suttas, but it's one way to track uh, or help you not lose your attention. So they advise that you count your breaths like the exhalation up to f- five or ten. And if your mind wanders, you will lose count. And this is this helps you uh, know whether your mind is wandering or not. So that led to wondering like how, how many breaths per minute and so forth. So Harvard uh, Medical School went to Tibet to find out about some of the claims that Tibetan monks had made in, in history about uh, physiological changes and etc. And they, they, they got permission from the Dalai Lama to go into uh, to some of the hermits and uh, monks who were really meditation monks and, and measure them with these all this apparatus, this Dr. Herbert Benson from uh, Harvard. The Dalai Lama felt that it was uh, there was a lot of scientific skepticism about these claims, and it would be good to just measure them. Uh, it, it was a, it's again the monks were resistant to it because it's it's really uh, you're not supposed to display supernormal any supernormal capacities, and so it's a little on the fringe of Vinaya. But the Dalai Lama felt that it was important to to for the rest of the world to sort of know that these are not just wild claims. So they went in and m- measured respiration per minute and core temperatures and a lot of different things. And indeed, they, the, the, the number is somewhere around two and a half breaths per minute in, the, in a very deep state of concentration. And then can go down from there. Now, if you read the, the commentaries, the fourth jhana is seems to be the cessation of breathing. It it literally says, yeah, they, you stop breathing, and it it can alarm you. You think, am I dead? I mean, that's what they say in the commentary. Am I dead? <laughs> I can't be dead. I'm still alive. <laughs> um, they're kind of calming because as the respiration gets down, it it kind of might be a little concerning. I don't really think that they actually stop breathing in the fourth jhana. I think that what they mean is that you don't really... It's so slow and and subtle that it's it's like like you're not really breathing. You're, you're losing the capacity to even experience the breath. After all, how, well, how do you know this? Because you're, you're getting there, this is in the case, you're getting there by breath meditation. And the whole instructions in the breath meditation is to know uh, you are breathing out and you are breathing in 
long or short. And to know I am breathing in, gladdening the mind. So in the early stages, raising joy and energy, breathing in, breathing out, etc., and as you get farther into the sutta on breath meditation, the, the calmer and more peaceful elements come out. <clears throat> but you remain aware of the breath. However, the more, and the more still your mind becomes, the more equanimous your mind becomes, the the slower the respirations and the harder it is to detect. And in fact, of course, I think really what happens is that uh, you're not really experiencing breathing. Uh, actually, you're, you're, it's the after image of breathing, the impression of breathing. I know it's like kind of, it, the only thing I can think of is getting off a horse. Have you ever gone for a ride on a horse, half an hour, an hour, especially if you're not used to it? After you get off, you can't walk funny. You walk funny. You, you, you can't... The same getting off a sailboat that's rocking a lot. You, you don't have your, your land legs. you got your sea legs and your land legs. These are the after... after Mind-made after effects. You, don't, you, you retain the, the, impre, the mental impression of the experience. And this is in more or less what they call the nimitta. So it's something that you can imagine the stillness. If you didn't have to breathe, how still your mind would have to be. And notice, notice, uh, you know, you you all have the experience of having had to have breathing hard and respiration, and everything from all kinds of activities and from emotional arguments and stuff. Uh, you know about that. So just reverse it and imagine how the stillness and the emotional refinement that would accompany something where you can't even detect that you're breathing anymore. So that is uh, equanimity in the uh, the jhanic form of equanimity. And they, the, the Buddha has beautiful descriptions of it. Usually for the fourth jhana, he talks about uh, as if a man has, has covered completely with a white sheet, a clean white sheet over the entire body. No part of the body is left uncovered. So it's all it's just, just pure white. Um, the, the form of the body itself is, is gone. The details of the form of the body, the actual, there, there's no feeling left of the body. So you're not, you feel unembodied, you, you feel bodiless. And your emotional state is is exquisitely still and pure. This does not mean it's there's a nothingness to it. It means that it's the, the finest, most exquisite sort of pleasure that you can have. You are relieved of all distress and all concern and all future and all past. And I and 
you don't, you're not conceptualizing, so you're not thinking, I'm in the present. You're, you are, you are, you just are. So all uh, forms of discursive thought have ceased. And so it's this beautiful kind of pure, white expanse of, uh, without, without body. It's a very profound. Uh, characterized by equanimity, upeka. You can't stay in that forever, um, but it's if you actually kind of go towards that, then uh, this is the source of ex- sort of supernormal or sort of extraordinary uh, psychic capacity to experience and intuit things that you you can't in any uh, in in your ordinary. Uh, condition of mind. <clears throat> you know, you have uh, accounts of all extraordinary things of people under anesthetic or on drugs or in in uh, extraordinary situations. Their mind works differently, even in an accident. Or if you, if you fall from a height and then and survive. You, you're, people describe their whole life flashing before their eyes in, in an accelerated way, and it, obviously. The objective time is only a quarter of a second, half a second, and yet they had this full life experience in that. In that. So your mind can, in certain states of consciousness, your mind can reveal things to you that you cannot possibly get in ordinary states of mind. So that's one of the sort of uses of this fourth jhana. Now, if you remember the story of the Buddha on the night of his awakening, he does not do he does not do vipassana vipassana hasn't been invented yet right so how could the buddha do vipassana he does samatha he does samadhi he does the four, he does he finds his way through the fourth to the fourth jhana and emerges from that and then has insights into cause and effect that he had not or couldn't access. And it's this structure of cause and effect, how things, what the causes are for the arising of things, that uh, allows his, his vipassana to arise, his, in, his cl- uh, clarity of sight, of the sight of the eye, the wisdom eye, he sees with his with his mind how things work, how it is that we're bound up, how what the cause of distress and suffering is, and how it ceases. So it's off the base of this deep stillness that he the the insight naturally has arisen from as a result of that. So that's very important um, to remember that that's the classical format. It's not not starting with vipassana because it wasn't invented. It has to start with samatha, samadhi, and then out naturally rising and swelling out of samadhi, 
uh, wisdom arises. <clears throat> That's not the format we have been trained in in the West. We we have we don't know any other way to come to solutions except by linear rational thought. But actually, when we look at the history of science, we see that that's not the way a lot of the greatest breakthroughs were made. They weren't made through linear processes. Einstein talks about it. He says, how I came to understand these things was not, was by uh, intuition and music. He played his violin. And he thought about these things, but he liked to be alone and in a quiet room, and things popped into his mind. So it's intuition is there's no traceable, discursive, linear process which led to that sudden understanding. It's just a sudden understanding that that came out of some stillness and uh, balanced by some just the playing of music. It must be in a different part of the brain. Newton also says similar things. He lives alone like a hermit his whole life, and uh, he actually uses the word meditation, silence and meditation, the source of his, his productivity. Of course, most of his preoccupation was religious. If you look at the total opus of uh, Newton, only a small percentage is physics. The rest is rather eccentric theories about the Bible. (laughs) So uh, this uh, stillness is not just a source of peace, but also... uh, can allow you to solve and resolve uh, all kinds of practical issues that are are hard to deal with through just linear processing. And so this we, we have to learn to trust this. Uh, quite a, astonishing creativity and, and new ideas come out of stillness. So when you practice when you're practicing towards your equanimity, uh, you shouldn't think that it's irrelevant or just um, not part of the the world we live in. It actually can be a very abundant source of of new ideas and vision and creative aspects. And also, new you could shatter your kind of pre- your prejudices and your you just get new ways of seeing things. It kind of softens up the heart. It, it opens up some of the new, new, new pathways to, to, and contexts for seeing things. So it has a, a lot of practical uh, implications as well. So I will leave that uh, discussion about equanimity as a function of samadhi for tonight. And tomorrow we will uh, talk about the seven factors of awakening, seven factors of enlightenment, which, and the seventh is, surprise, surprise, equanimity. (laughs) 